Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Are you a scholar? journalist or writer focused on Palestine, contribute to the foremost journal on the past, present and future of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Quarterly is soliciting articles for peer review, essays and letters from Jerusalem. Send your work to jq at palestine-studies.org or see palestine-studies.org forward slash journals for more info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and this is the second and last episode dedicated to the history of Rural Stores and the Pro-Jerusalem Society. Rural Stores being the governor, first military and then civilian governor of Jerusalem between 1970 and 1926. I also want to remind all of the listeners that we are approaching episode 100. And before it's time to start sending your questions, as some already did. The last episode of Jerusalem Applied, episode 100, will be entirely dedicated to you. I will answer all of your questions that you may have about Jerusalem, curiosity about uh, events, history, facts, people, society, but also about the podcast. Or last, if you have any question about myself. I will indeed also answer both questions. But let's go back now to Rona Stores, the neglected governor of Jerusalem between 1917 and 1926. But if on one end Rona Stores had been neglected, his legacy is very much visible throughout the city. On September 6, 1918, 12 individuals met at the residence of the military governor of Jerusalem. 
the 12 individuals were Ronald Storrs himself. Fernando Diotalevi, the custos, or the leader of the custody of the Holy Land. Dr. Eder, representative of the Jewish community. Father Hippolytos, the representative of the Greek Orthodox Church. Camille Fendi Usaini, the Grand Mufti. And Musa Kassim Pasha, the president of the municipality. Bishop Kud, representative of the Armenian Orthodox Church. And Mr. Salama, the vice president of the municipality. Also, Father Abel, Charles Asby, Major Richmond, and Major Spafford. The composition of this council was fluid and changed at every meeting. Yes, the room was filled with tension as the governor was trying to win the confidence of those who were still skeptical and suspicious of British rule. And here, on September 6, he was launching his new organization, the Pro Jerusalem Society. A few months earlier, in December 1917, if you remember, General Allenby had led the British troops into Jerusalem, ending Ottoman rule in the city and paving the way for greater British success in the region. Though the conquest of Jerusalem proved to be a relatively easy military task, the control of the city required a larger set of skills. All aspects of the conquest and the takeover had been carefully planned in London. While Allenby's military operations were unfolding in Palestine, the Foreign Office and the War Office were discussing the future asset of Jerusalem. Most of the policies adopted in relation to the city were a reflection of wartime agreements, including the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the Balfour Declaration. British policymakers, starting with Mark Sykes, were aware of and sensitive to the tensions between the different religious communities in Jerusalem. From the very early stages, the British aimed to avoid clashes between the Christians and Muslims and among the different Christian communities. Indeed, they anticipated that conflict would arise at the end of Ottoman rule. Three weeks before the occupation of Jerusalem took place, the War Office formalized the policies to be adopted for the administration of the city. Internal security was paramount, so Allenby proposed that Muslim holy places should come under the control of Indian Muslim troops. The British were to be in control of Christian and Jewish troops. British concerns at that juncture were security and the risk that communities would turn against each other. By the end of November 1970, when the occupation of Jerusalem was on the agenda in London, it was only a matter of time before it would become a reality. The Foreign Office advocated a strong civilian rule while the War Office suggested keeping the city under martial law until the future of Jerusalem and the region would become clearer. In the end, military rule, as we saw, proved to be a relatively long period of transition that was superseded by civilian rule only in the summer of 1920 with the establishment of the British Mandate for Palestine. In the first episode, we already saw the establishment of the British military administration of Jerusalem, which coincided with the arrival of the British in the city on December 11, 1970. We also presented the uh, short biography of Ronald Storrs, who by then served in Cairo and moved with the British army into Palestine and eventually was appointed governor of Jerusalem in early 1918. 
The main purpose of this episode is to discuss the establishment of the Pro-Jerusalem Society in 1918, its composition and its aims. But I also want to discuss and analyze a little bit the ideology and symbolism that the Pro-Jerusalem Society adopted with a particular focus on preservation and sectarian harmony. Out there, you will be able to find articles that have been dedicated to the study of a pro-Jerusalem society. However, an assessment based on the minutes of its council and on the parallel activities of a town planning commission has yet to be written and also to be recorded as a podcast. Today I will try to present some of the cases where we see the merge between the Pro-Jerusalem Society and the official British Town Planning Commission. Most of the literature available that has been published about the Pro-Jerusalem Society relies mainly on the publication of the Pro-Jerusalem Society itself and obviously on British administration reports. The minutes shed light on the internal dynamics of those organizations, showing how the decision-making process worked and eventually translated into action. So in presenting the society's activities, I want to focus on a few, but to me important, decisions first proposed by the society and later adopted by the Town Planning Commission. For instance, the adoption of Jerusalem White Stone as the only visible building material allowed. And I believe that this decision changed the way the city would look like and develop for decades, in fact, generations to come. I also want to introduce a concept that I'm borrowing from a good friend and former guest of the podcast, Vincent Lemire, the idea of citadinité, a very nice French word, that we can translate in English as urban citizenship, which was shared by the inhabitants of Jerusalem and was challenged by the new order brought by the British. As I said earlier, the British and the pro-Jerusalem society in particular were concerned about uh, sectarian harmony. Now, sectarianism was superimposed onto the Ottoman order. The city diverse inhabitants were divided essentially segregated at the expenses of Jerusalem as a world city. More importantly, though the history of the local communities was segmented into a large number of narratives that certainly favored uh, certain communities over others and regularly excluded one or more of these communities, I will try to show the extent to which urban planning, which not only relate to maps and borders, but also includes materials and regulations impacted this idea of citadinité and its representation. Let me say a few things about the sources. Maybe some of you are interested in finding more material, maybe even to start a little bit of a research project, or certainly to get a sense and ask a good question, where did Roberto find all of this stuff? So if you're interested about the Pro-Jerusalem Society, for the most part, you will find limited sources. The publications of the Pro-Jerusalem Society, some British documents, material that surprisingly is available at the Central Zionist Archives, and also local newspapers and sometimes, seldomly, diaries and memoirs that talk about it. The plans that the Pro-Jerusalem Society presented being scrutinized 
through the lenses of sociology, arts, architecture, politics, anthropology, religion, and indeed history. The narrative produced often view the city from the perspective of one or more communities, but rarely discuss it as a global entity. And when I say global, I mean literally global. On the one end, this may be the results of a careful choice to prove or disprove claims. But on the other hand, the archival complexity of Jerusalem often acts as a deterrent to write a comprehensive history of the city. And a good example is really represented by the Pro-Jerusalem Society and the Town Planning Commission from 1917 to 1926, which coincided with the governorship of roller stores. The minutes of the Society's councils are not to be found at the Jerusalem Municipal Archives, which would be probably the first place that anyone interested in the history of Jerusalem would look at but in fact are available at the central Zionist archives. But we must say that, unfortunately, only some of the minutes are available. So I also relied on my own work and for the podcast on the minutes of the town planning commissions, which this time are available at the municipal archives. However, on the other end, what's missing are the building permits. The building permits, known as uh, Ruxa, seem, however, to have disappeared. And after searching in several institutions in Jerusalem, I came to the conclusion that this material may simply be buried in some corner of a municipality. It is also possible that, due to its possibly controversial nature, it has been hidden. In order to overcome this issue, I relied on material from different archives in the city and abroad, where I found copies of some of the building permits. I looked at material... Uh, at the Castle of Violin, the Velatin Patriarchate, but also material available in the French and Italian consular archives. And the holdings of the renovated Israeli state archives are now available online, and material related to urban planning is available in a number of files related to the British Monday. Obviously, as many probably know, the fact that everything is only available online doesn't really guarantee us that everything is be scanned, and maybe some documents may not have been made available to researchers. None of the archives that I visited contain a specific section dedicated to urban planning, but a global history of a city and its plans needs to be brought to life, patiently, one step at a time. Let's start talking about the establishment of a pro-Jerusalem society and also introduce some interesting concepts like patrimonial ideology or as a previous guest of the podcast, Palestine Naili, called this period of time as the demunicipalization of Jerusalem. In other words, the idea of removing the agency of a municipality for the benefit of other institutions, town planning commissions, the pro-Jerusalem society. And it's, in essence, the idea of removing local power for the benefit of the British and on the Zionists later, but that's another topic. So early 1918, Storrs conceived the idea of establishing a society or a committee of the free races, as he put it, with the purpose of developing a common spirit among the communities of Jerusalem. The Pro-Jerusalem Society was born as a non-governmental organization designed to assist the military governor in, quote, 
the preservation of the interest of Jerusalem, its districts and inhabitants. So stores mobilize local leaders with the intent to promote and achieve sectarian harmony. We wish to establish a system that would preserve the interest of everyone and prevent one community's interest from being imposed over the others. Obviously, we can appreciate immediately the irony of all of this and the inconsistency of British planning and policymaking, given that at the very same time, they just promised Palestine, part of it, to the Zionists through the Balfour Declaration. So obviously, these ideas were going to clash at some point. At this stage, the pro-Jerusalem society was involved in the cleaning, reconstructions, and preservation of the old city. Can one make Jerusalem modern? Asked Ronald Storrs. And he replied to himself, Yes, gentlemen, one can, but on one condition, it's destruction. The 12 individuals that I mentioned earlier that met for the first time on September 6, 1918, agreed to establish a council that would help and advise the government in all issues related to the character of the city. In other words, it's religious milieu. Because let's remember this very important point. For stores and for many British, Jerusalem was about religion, was about religious identity, was about Jews, Christians, and Muslims. It was not about Jerusalemites as secular residents of a city. The minutes of the first meeting of the society's council show that it was not going to interfere in the work of a municipality and that the responsibilities of a municipality would remain the same. In reality, the activity of the two institutions seemed to have been blurred. The governor often had the last word. And with the establishment of a town planning commission, the role of a municipality became even more unclear and maybe argue that the first years of a British rule marked a process of demunicipalization. The Jerusalem municipality was deprived of many of its functions and it was reduced to a secondary role which emphasized British rather than local rule over the city. The rapid establishment of the pro-Jerusalem society several months after the British took Jerusalem suggests that there was a sense of urgency in gaining control of the physical environment. This sense of urgency had been expressed as early as April 1918 when the governor issued a public notice was paramount purpose was to preserve the aspect of the city. No person shall demolish, erect, alter or repair the structure of any building in the city of Jerusalem or its environs within a radius of 2,500 meters from the Damascus Gate, Babalamud, until he has obtained a written permit from the military governor. Similarly, the governor proposed forbidding the use of red brick and corrugated iron. And as I will discuss later, this was a decision that would mark the future development of both all the New Jerusalem and to an extent of all Palestine. The establishment of a pro-Jerusalem society was also meant to legitimize British rule, and the preservation of your city was a means of debasing the improvements introduced by the late Ottoman administration. It was suggested that preservation was turned into a nobody does it better sort of propaganda tool. The extent of the control exercised over the city becomes clear in the last report signed by stores 
right before the pro-Jerusalem society was dissolved in 1926. Estorge wrote that during the eight years of a society's existence, stringent control has been exercised on new building and particularly in your city. Shop signs have been controlled under regulations originated by the society. All streets, both in the old and new city, have been named. And perhaps I should remind you to go back to the episode with Yair Wallach, where we talked about the subcommittee of a pro-Jerusalem society that discussed this idea of uh, providing names for the streets of Jerusalem. But let's go back to the pro-Jerusalem society. The aims of the society were embedded in its establishment and were highly publicized. Once the society became officially recognized and incorporated in the British mandate after 1920, its membership and donations grew. According to a clause, specifically clause number seven, any person may become a member of a society on payment of an annual subscription of not less than five pounds or a donation of not less than 25 pounds. In the spirit of a society, the list of its members and donors include Jerusalemites from all communities, financial institutions, and a number of British officials. Quarterly reports and other society publications reassured members of its development. Members were apprised of how donations turned into visible assets and were constantly reminded of a society's mission, which was sevenfold. And I really want to read the, the seven sort of... Uh, goals that society had in mind because I think they're important in understanding the legacy of Roland stores in the decades to come. First, the protection of and the addition to the amenities of Jerusalem and its district. The provision and maintenance of parks, gardens and open spaces in Jerusalem and its district. The establishment in the district of Jerusalem of museums, libraries, art galleries, exhibitions, musical and dramatic centers or other institutions of a similar nature for the benefit of the public. The protection and preservation with the consent of the government of the antiquities in the district of Jerusalem. The encouragement in the district of Jerusalem of arts, handicrafts and industries in consonance with the general objects of the society. Point number six, the administration of any movable property in the district of Jerusalem which is acquired by the society or entrusted to it by any person or corporation with a view to securing the improvement of the property and the welfare of its tenants and occupants. Lastly, to cooperate with the Department of Education, Agriculture, Public Health, Public Works, so far as may be in harmony with the general objects of the society. One of its underlying purposes was to promote harmony between the communities. In an attempt to start on the right foot, the meetings of the society's councils were conducted in French. French was generally believed to serve as the most appropriate lingua franca, but it was also chosen in order to demonstrate British benevolence and lack of colonial imperial spirit. We have no written records of linguistic problems at the council meetings, but it is possible that they turn into a babble of tongues or resulted in pure silence, one or the other. 
as I was carefully examining the minutes was available of the councils, I noted that some members are never reported as saying anything. Perhaps what they said was not worth recording, or they may have simply sat silent around the table. In line with his behavior, was certainly the custos of the custody of the Holy Land, Father Diotalevi. Though the records show a fairly good attendance, it seems as he chose to be silent throughout the meetings, which reached a lively pitch at times. In his diary, he only mentioned that he would attend the council, but he never reported anything about it. So to me, there's a correlation here. If some of his people just decided to sit through the meetings, not say anything, and maybe to talk about them, you know, with their peers or write about them in some other documents, diaries and memoirs, but essentially not to be fully active in the pro-Jerusalem society. Sectarian harmony, however, transcended languages and stores promoted the idea of common interest in the image of an old city that would look ancient but would function as a modern city. And I think this is where the problems really started to become more evident. Stores may have been the mind behind this idea, but it was Charles Ashby, in his role as civic advisor, who translated into action. Ashby, who is a very interesting figure, understood the old city as a place where, for centuries, sectarian rivalries and hatred prevailed. But now, under British rule, all parties would meet together and, in his words, regard the holy city as a trust for all mankind, put the sectarian interest as far as possible on one side and see what they could do. Sectarian harmony, however, was based on a major misconception. The idea that communities were divided in Jerusalem and in conflict with one another. In this view, local inhabitants were romanticized and orientalized, understood in a sense as authentic actors in a religious theme park. Such a mythologization served to make Jerusalem seem more biblical and less modern. Paradoxically, the pro-Jerusalem society imposed a model that was based on the sectarianization of the city. And it was suggested that Ashbin stores were painstakingly working towards the segregation of the old city from the new city, so to create even a better sectarian armor, divide people. Or I argue that this segregation encouraged the idea of unmixing of the local population and brought centuries of relatively peaceful coexistence and more importantly, active cohabitation to an end. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. 
Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jerusalem had been a, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, and multilinguistic city. But at this point in its history, this order was challenged. And homogenization became the paramount objective. Citadinité was restricted and fragmented. The shared space, the famous Wasif Juaria, who left us with an amazing set of uh, writings, memoirs, published by Salim Tamari in Isam Nassar, but also the shared space discussed by Gad Frumkin, a Jewish resident of the city, was rapidly disappearing. The old city was the main target of the activities of the pro-Jerusalem society. Several projects intended to turn intramuros, or within the wall, Jerusalem into an open-air museum. The cleaning of the citadel was designed to bring back the former glory of what was understood to be the city of David, the site of memory, and the site of power. It was not an easy task to clean and restore the citadel, meant to become a showcase of British power. The citadel, once used as a locus of a mi local military power, was transformed into a place for secular cultural activities and performances, and still is today. Stores and Ashby divested the citadel of its religious significance and imbued it with the newly reopened monument with a colonial spirit. In 1921, Stores opened an exhibition displaying the drafts of the urban renewal plans and Palestinian arts and crafts produced under the ages of a pro-Jerusalem society. A second important project developed in the old city was the restoration of the walls and the ramparts. And today you can still walk around the walls and the ramparts very much as a result of uh, this project of restoration. Ashby declared that Jerusalem was the finest medieval city still standing. The most perfect example of medieval city circumvallation. In other words, he was talking about the walls. The idea was to clean up the walls so that people could walk around the city and with the reconstruction of the ramparts that visitors and inhabitants could enjoy the most beautiful and romantic park promenade in the world. The restoration of the walls was, however, not just as a matter of uh, 
creating a space for the enjoyment of a city landmark. It was a sign of a segregation between the old and new city. The old city was intended as a city of the mind. And it has been argued should have been dedicated to spiritual, cultural, and religious life. The green belt that you can still see nowadays, smaller than it was projected to be, around the old city proposed by Ashby and realized to an extent, may be interpreted as a way to isolate it from the new city. So I would like to say that this plan created the impression that the old city and the neighborhoods that developed outside its walls were blended together in order to respect the mandate policy of avoiding religious segregation in urban planning. The reality, however, was rather different. Those city dwellers may have crossed the fictitious borders between the two entities, the old and the new city. Visitors and pilgrims were certainly less keen to spend time in the new city. Segregation may have not existed officially, but it undoubtedly pervaded the daily lives of Jerusalem inhabitants. The publications of the Pro-Jerusalem Society suggest that it was involved in town planning, deemed essential to protect Jerusalem from what they call violent changes, or above all, to make sure that principles of adaptability, the grasp of social and architectural norms, and the effective administrative machinery would be respected. Though Ashby discussed the plans presented earlier by McLean and Patrick Geddes in a publication of a pro-Jerusalem society, the minute of its concise suggests that planning was never really discussed. Plans were adopted but never fully scrutinized. Both Ashby and Storrs were well aware of the potential for contention between the communities. McLean's plan was presented to the municipal council. Geddes' plan was never presented to anybody, and Ashby's plan was presented to the town planning commission that superseded, later, the pro-Jerusalem society. The new city was different from the old city. Well, that's an obvious statement. The former would house different ideologies, which would accommodate the necessities of a Zionist in particular. Now, cashing in on, the promise made by the British with the Balfour Declaration. In this sense, the pro-Jerusalem society proved its limits, including the fact that the society was more the expression of individuals like Storrs and Ashby and their visions rather than a coherent organization with goals that would transcend the will of a few characters. In relation to the new city, the pro-Jerusalem society was, for the most part, involved with projects in developing the establishment of libraries, exhibitions, musical and dramatic centers, as defined in the Charter. Ashby also worked towards the development of local arts and crafts and local industries, which were then employed in the reconstructions of the old city. A dichotomy between the old and new city emerged under the Ottomans. That's obviously expected when the first neighborhoods outside the walls were built and people, mainly wealthy residents, began to move out, suggesting a contrast between a more secular and modern city outside the walls vis-à-vis -vis a less modern and more religious city within the walls. We also know that there is no black and white in this work of Michel Campos, and particularly the interview that I recorded with her discussing some of her articles, one that looked at uh, maps, you know, 
properties really suggest that we need to understand that there are plenty of gray areas. So the Protestantism Society, with its influence, Town Planning Commission and British planners certainly amplified this division. But it would be a mistake to create a barrier between the two entities. Both, the old and the new city, were part of the same fabric. Let me now move to talk about the symbolism of the Pro-Jerusalem Society. The emblem of the Pro-Jerusalem Society comprises four small Christian crosses drawn inside the Stair of David, outflanked by a Muslim crescent. The idea was to convey the message that the harmony between city dwellers and those who cared about it was possible. Despite the symbolism and the declared interest to preserve and protect the city, the Pro-Jerusalem Society seemed to have forgotten one key element, Jerusalemites. The minutes of a society's councils are filled with details about discussions in relation to the wars, the markets, art and crafts, and other activities. But overall, very little was discussed in relation to the inhabitants of the city. One exception was the debate over the materials to be employed in the restoration of old buildings and the constructions of new ones. Like any ritual city, Jerusalem was often, if not always, appropriated and therefore transformed by its new rulers. From King David, who united the Kingdom of Israel and made Jerusalem his new capital, through the Roman, Muslim and Crusader conquerors, everyone adapted the city according to their purposes and visions. Following the Six-Day War in 1967, Ben-Gurion promoted plans to remove the very same walls Stores and Ashby had regarded as a symbol of Jerusalem. To Ben-Gurion, these walls were not biblical enough. They were mostly Ottomans. A symbolic act of quasi-colonial control and of ideological value was the operation of renaming and numbering the city streets. The preservation of a biblical image of the city was the primary concern of a society, a close second to imperial politics. So naming the streets was therefore understood as a modernizing necessity, but naming criteria were, however, different compared to other colonial cities. Jerusalem was not a regular colonial city. Jerusalem was not Dublin, was not Mumbai, was not Cape Town, was not another colonial city. The symbolism of a pro-Jerusalem society was transformed from a, an innocuous logo to a real allocations of names and numbers. So the names chosen for Jerusalem reflected British imperial history in part. A special subcommittee was formed, one that I mentioned earlier and one that you can find with more details in the interview with Yair Wallach. In 1926, stores wrote that all streets both in the old and new city have been named. Suitable ceramic plates made by the Bezalel School of Arts have been erected in the new city and a complete set for the old city made in the society's ceramic factory. And you can still see many of them out there in Jerusalem 2023. Naming was not an easy task. Ashby wrote that the list is so full of history, poetry and folklore that it is well worth careful study. Stores eventually chose saints, prophets, scholars, kings, belonging to the history of all religious communities, which symbolized his attempt to achieve, once again, sectarian balance. He personally chose names such as Francis Street, St. Paul Road, 
Richard Coeur de Lyon and Saladin Road. One road was also dedicated to a woman, Queen Melisende. These names were indeed linked to the history of the city, however, none of them truly symbolized the unity of Jerusalem. On the contrary, when one reflects on the history of Jerusalem, some of these names suggest cleavage, division, and conflict rather than unity and peace. Naming the streets of Jerusalem gave the British a degree of physical control, while local Jerusalemites view it as a radical transformation of their local environment. Anonymity, and I think this is a very important aspect of places like Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not unique. Anonymity in Jerusalem was almost unknown, even outside the walls, and every person was easily located. In Ottoman Jerusalem, streets were known by more than one name. However, this did not affect the knowledge of the city fabric. And more importantly, if you really want to look at it from a very practical perspective, mail was still delivered to the right mailbox. In the long term, one can say that street naming brought a practical amelioration for the city, let's call it more uniformity. But on the other hand, the same process suggests that Jerusalemites lost a key element defining the concept of cittadinité. Toponyms, the names of the streets, based on groups' heritage and history, were imposed on Jerusalemites, once again fostering sectarianism and reducing the sense of Jerusalem as a global city. But let's move now to the question of red brick and white stone, which I'm sure some of you may find very interesting and also triggering some interesting questions. With the formulation of a town planning ordinance, Jerusalem Towns Planning Commission began operating in 1921. Ashby was then a member and a secretary of a commission and member of a central commission. So he operated both in Jerusalem but also at large in Palestine. Nearly all building permits and plans underwent a scrutiny and decision. And that's why I was very much interested in finding these building permits. I was curious to hear and find his voice, his comments, but also to see the project that Palestinians submitted to the Planning Commission. The Town Planning Commission was meant to represent the progress that the British mandate would bring to Palestine. However, this was not a democratically elected institution and membership came to include officials, professionals, and local representatives. These were all ex nihilo, basically named by the British. The authority of the commission was limited, but crucially included the authorization of constructions of buildings and streets. The Project Muslim Society was partly superseded by the new institution, which then debated all building permits submitted to the municipality. The vision of the old and new city, as planned by the Pro-Jerusalem Society, was now transferred to the Commission, which became the official British approach to the urban development of the city. And I think this is an important passage. The Pro-Jerusalem Society kept working in the city, but essentially the same ideas that built the Pro-Jerusalem Society were now transferred to the more official Town Planning Commission. Jerusalem possessed an appeal to the imagination that not Rome nor even Athens could rival. 
This was said by Storrs. And Storrs and Ashby clearly dislike physical evidence of 19th century modernity. When asked to grant a concession to run a streetcar line to Bethlehem and the Mount of Olives, Storrs replied through several newspapers, quote, the first rail section would have to be laid over the dead body of the military governor. The argument was so closed and both the minutes of the society councils and town planning commissions do not report any major discussion of public transportation around the old city. The topic was left untouched until 2011, when the contemporary Jerusalem municipality opened a very controversial tram line. My point is that the unilateral decisions by stores proved to be a crucial barrier for the future development of communal relations in Jerusalem. Local inhabitants were deprived of a facility that could have created new meeting points or fostered relations between communities. Something that is more visible in places like Haifa, where Haifa had all of these places where communities met. Obviously, the context then defined the nature of those relations. But once again, if we think about sites of meeting, sites of relations, well, Jerusalem certainly did not develop anything similar like Haifa. One of the most consequential decisions, however, imposed by the commission was the imposition of the Jerusalem white stone. This is a limestone material available in a number of quarries in Palestine Many are around Bethlehem, which is certainly famous for. In the eyes of Storrs and Ashby, the white stone of Jerusalem was a key material representing a visible connection with the biblical past of the city. Just to summarize this a little bit more colloquially, essentially, you have two Brits who are making the case that all buildings in Jerusalem should be white because that represents their vision of how Jerusalem would have looked like in biblical times. But also you can see that at repercussions. If you ever traveled to Jerusalem, and sure, many of you have been to Jerusalem or are in Jerusalem, well, the entire city is white. And that's the reason why. That's the moment Jerusalem turned white. That doesn't mean there were no white buildings in Jerusalem. Of course there were plenty of white buildings because that limestone material is widely available in the area, but it's also true there were buildings that were built out of different materials, therefore, with different colors. The council had already argued during its first meeting that the old city could have not been modernized without its destruction. Essentially, the Pro-Jerusalem Society made the argument that the modernization of Jerusalem would have destroyed its meaning, its value. And so anything modern should have been removed and certainly nothing modern should have been built around and certainly inside the old city of Jerusalem. Following this declaration of principles on September 30, 1918, the council met for the second time and Storr, in his capacity as governor, proposed the banning of use of red brick and corrugated iron in the construction and renovation in the old city. According to stores, Celestial Jerusalem was not meant to be contaminated by more modern and cheaper materials. Camilla Lusaini, representing the Muslim community, but certainly voicing the concern of several other members of the council, suggested that the idea was good in principle, but it would have been very difficult for dwellers of the old city 
who for the most part belong to the lower classes, to access the more expensive white stone. According to the minutes, a discussion followed and it was decided to look for public funding in order to balance the cost for the preservation of the old city. Al-Husseini touched upon a very delicate issue to the extent that the topic was then postponed and rarely discussed again. In May 1922, the red brick question, however, was back on the table. This time not at the Pro-Jerusalem Society, but the Town Planning Commission. It was agreed that silicate bricks could be used on the following conditions. First, for internal or carcass work without restrictions. So, for internal use, red bricks could have been used. For external work, however, there are three points. So, silicate bricks could have been used in the following. In all industrial zones shown in red on the zoning plan. So, you need to look at the map. In the garden cities of Talpier, Bonchbai, and Gingeria. And in these places, without restrictions. These were meant to be different places. Elsewhere, in the new city, only subject to the special approval in each case of the Jerusalem Town Planning Commission. And when we look at the old city, the article is very clear. Its external use in the old city is absolutely prohibited. Following this decision, the Commission had to deal with a large number of cases regarding the erection or operation of buildings without the necessary permit. Al-Husayini's argument resurfaced. Despite being local and indeed more suitable for the aesthetics of the old and new city, white stone was more expensive and many could not simply afford it. In time, the white stone was imposed on every building in the region, and local Palestinians developed a sense of pride in it. Materials often come to represent and symbolize the history of a city or a region. However, more than just a choice, the white stone was a colonial burden that limited the possibilities of the local population, narrowed their development, and in the long term, disentangled those lives in common that had developed throughout the centuries in Jerusalem. In recent years, a growing amount of uh, literature in relation to the pro-Jerusalem society and the urban planning of a city has been published, as I mentioned earlier, or is in the pipeline for publication. I just recently uh, saw a PhD that successfully passed uh, the Viva about Rona stores and, you know, once again, discussing issues that pertain uh, to the pro-Jerusalem society. I'm aware of uh, a book proposal about stores, just his life, but obviously including a lot of material about Jerusalem. So, so there is definitely material out there, material that will be available in the future. Ashby's and other plans have been scrutinized from different perspectives. However, very little attention has been paid to the minutes of the society's council and the town planning commission in general. Similarly, Stores, who was the mastermind of the pro-Jerusalem society and the governor of Jerusalem, has been largely forgotten in the public sphere. A number of projects, such as the restoration of the ramparts and renovation of the cotton market, were all carried out under his aegis. The commission established a more organized work division and a formalized request and permit. In 1922, Clifford Holiday, who succeeded Ashby, pointed out that the existing plans for Jerusalem were inadequate. The two didn't like each other. He also reminded us that until 1926, 
the process of planning was practically supported by the force of stores, personality, and interest. This may explain why stores disappeared from public discourse after his departure. Once he left, his power and force disappeared, and therefore also his connection with Jerusalem, and in a sense also his legacy. Though, as a person, he was, so to speak, ancient history. His legacy as an actor of local urban planning was not that he's not. Despite quite harsh judgment reserved by Holiday on Ashby, and to an extent also on, on stores, he was certainly right to believe that they were amateurs. We should remember that some of the decisions made by the society and the commission have resulted in long-term consequences that are still visible in the city today. For instance, as I mentioned earlier, renaming the streets of Jerusalem, which symbolized the extent of British control. And obviously the Israeli did the same in 1948 and obviously post-1967. Similarly, the adoption of Whitestone, in itself a rather innocuous act, had large and likely unintended consequences. One of the leading principles of the pro-Jerusalem society was the preservation and safeguarding of the amenities of the Holy City without favor or prejudice to race or creed, and this is in the opening statement. Though preservation was certainly achieved, prejudice was a leading principle of the society. It has been argued that Ashby brought about a clear vision for Jerusalem, one that was meant to create an harmonious urban community. The fact is that a sectarian bias already existed in Jerusalem prior to the arrival of the British. Citadinité, as a counterweight to a segregation and conflict, was a powerful tool. It did exist. And that emerged within the boundaries of the late Ottoman reforms and was shaped and implemented by the local population. I mean, I'm not here painting a, a rosy picture of, of Jerusalem, but this was real. It was the lack of uh, local agency, which was taken away from the British and partly shared with the Zionists, that led to the failure of the Progerism society and subsequently of the British administration. And to pick up from the title of the previous guest of the podcast, Menachem Klein, Lives in Common, were gradually transformed into lives in isolation. Thank you for listening to the second and last episode dedicated to Ronald Stores, Pro-Jerusalem Society and the early years of the British administration of Jerusalem. Stay tuned for the next episode of Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.